Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Susan Greylock Usum, a host of the New Books Psychology Channel, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Ted Reinerson about his new book, co-edited with Dr. Lori Burke, The Restorative Nature of Ongoing Connections with the Deceased, Exploring Presence Within Absence. Dr. Ted Reinerson is a clinical psychiatrist and researcher in Seattle, Washington. He's also a national and international clinical teacher and a consultant to the Survivors of Violent Loss program. He's the author of Retelling Violent Death and the editor of Violent Death, Resilience and Intervention Beyond the Crisis. And he now has this new book, The Restorative Nature of Ongoing Connections with the Deceased, which we're going to be discussing today. Welcome to the New Books Network, Ted. Well, thank you for including me. This is really such an interesting book, and it includes, I think, like 17 or more essays from experts in bereavement, and I think it's so important because we're all going to face, have faced or will face grief and loss in our lives, and I think this book in many ways challenges what might be some of the prevailing thinking around uh, grief and uh, managing, coping with death. What made you want to uh, put this collection of essays together? Well, part of it, I think, comes from my, my clinical experience uh, and also my frustration in, uh, in not finding really coherent uh, sort of answers to uh, bereavement. I've been particularly interested in uh, bereavement with sudden and violent uh, dying, which is, uh, occurs in a minority of, of uh, deaths. When I was an undergraduate, I was an anthropology major, uh, so I always had great respect uh, for what went on culturally uh, with dying and with death, and uh, not only the uh, the differences, uh, but also the commonality um, that I thought was uh, addressed by healers. Um, going way back thousands of years ago by shaman 
most of whom were women, incidentally, uh, who dealt with uh, death and the uh, soul of the person as being very much alive and very present. And part of their healing ritual involved connecting with that presence, uh, beginning with some sort of uh, ritual dance or meal or celebration of, of the life of the person. And then the shaman would make a direct connection in the spiritual world with the presence of the deceased to establish what? I think probably what went on, because a lot of this was not written, was a an opportunity for a verbal connection uh, with the deceased, because in uh, that point in history, distress was uh, understood as being spiritual distress. And the reason that the person would be grief-stricken was uh, that the spirit of the person who had died was imbalanced. It was particularly imbalanced after there had been a sudden or a violent uh, death, presumably. So the idea was to uh, establish a connection so that what had been unsaid and unexpressed uh, could begin between the uh, soul of the of the deceased and the uh, the person who is so distressed with uh, either persistent sorrow or sometimes PTSD with panic attacks, high anxiety, and an inability to devote themselves to a living. Presumably that's what grief-stricken people were going through because grief, uh, which is just an exaggeration of sorrow, as I see it, and of mourning, there isn't anything specific about it. It's just that it's more intense and enduring and fixating. But presumably that was going on many thousands of years ago as it continues to go on descriptively in people with fixated uh, grief. Then I think the next historical uh, sort of referent point when it came to my interest was with the clergy who somewhat replaced uh, the shaman as an intermediary figure between the deceased and the spirit of the person um, that still lived. And... uh, and it lived in a divine sort of uh, space uh, rather than a natural uh, space. And the way of connection was through ritual and divine sort of uh, celebration and memorial and reunion uh, with the memory of the of the person. Um, but there was certainly ritualistic uh effects uh, and offerings uh, with clergy uh, in terms of their dress and uh, uh, celebratory uh, sort of ceremonies and burial um, that went on, but different than the shaman uh, in that their connection with the 
uh, spirit of the person was less direct, that uh, it dealt mainly with uh, uh, reassurance that the spirit of the uh, person was safe and distant and uh, particularly with monotheism uh, in a place that promised some sort of reunion eventually if you had that sort of belief system and then last in line of course and obviously this is a gross sort of simplification uh, comes the therapist and the uh, the therapist, unfortunately, as I see it, uh, isn't comfortable admitting uh, that we we continue to use a lot of these techniques and approaches uh, with grief therapy. Uh, sometimes they get lost in standardized sort of protocols, uh, and uh, that can become rigid in terms of what people focus on. I'm talking about therapists, and certainly their models do not involve spiritual and soul uh, sorts of considerations as they might. Um, grief is uh, as a psychological sort of uh, basis, um, and of course that began with some of Freud's progenitors, but he was the first person who. Uh, began writing psychoanalytic sort of uh, models about uh, grief as being a repressed uh, ambivalence towards the person that uh, died. And the fixation was based upon upon that feeling, that unexpressed uh, feeling. This is a model that uh, was, was uh, followed very carefully, as I see it, at least in the literature, uh, until the last 30 or 40 years, it's begun to soften a great deal. Uh, George Bonanno's work at Columbia pointing out that probably half of people, uh, he's he focused mostly on spousal bereavement, uh, express very little uh, grief. Well, little meaning uh, for a short period of time. It seems to resolve within four to six months spontaneously. And that not everyone goes through a, a prolonged episode of of sorrow. Um, and recently, uh, there have been been several books that have focused more on the continuing relationship uh, with the memory of the person. So we've gone from soul to spirit to now to memory, uh, and it. Uh, the, probably the most recent uh, book was by uh, Dennis Class and uh, Edith uh, Steffen, which came out in 2018, called Continuing Bonds and Bereavement. And that was an excellent um, volume, and it's sort of based upon the innovation of uh, Phyllis Silverman uh, 20 or 30 years before that. Uh, so rather than the... Uh, psychoanalytic model of needing to surrender the attachment to the uh, of the deceased as a, a part of resolving the grief uh, 
the model began to shift uh, so that uh, the goal was not surrendering the attachment or extinguishing it, but celebrating it, uh, getting closer and more comfortable with it uh, so that it could remain a source of uh, psychological stability and uh, and hopefulness. Um, and I became very interested uh, in terms of therapy of align myself with the soul, spirit, memory, all three of the deceased. And as I saw it, the deceased was present. The moment we began telling stories about the deceased, they began to appear to us at some level. And the importance, uh, and we can talk about this uh, later on, uh, about some of the specific uh, techniques that uh, that I think are addressed in this uh, in this book. Well, that's what I got interested in, and I've uh, it was probably four or five years ago. I decided that uh, we had to gather a group of uh, there aren't many shaman <clears throat> that I'm aware of that have written anything, but clergy and therapists to put uh, have a meeting where we could begin to engage as an exploratory uh, sort of level uh, the presence within absence of the, uh, of the deceased uh, that exists in the majority of people uh, who are going through the death of a loved one. Uh, and so that's uh, in May of three years ago, we had a meeting here in uh, Seattle and uh, these were all clinician researchers that were gathered. They're either uh, psychiatrists, and of course there aren't many of us that are doing this sort of work in psychiatry, mostly psychologists. Um, and um, there were uh, the psychiatrists uh, were a different sort of lot. I found psychiatrists... Uh, who's actually using shamanic uh, techniques. He's a board-certified psychiatrist who wrote a chapter on that. Um, another board-certified psychiatrist who's a Buddhist who wrote a chapter sort of connecting those two concepts. Uh, there are three or four uh, clergy representing all of the faiths uh, talking about uh, how grief is managed uh, in their, their clerical uh, models and in their practice. Uh, Edith Stefan also wrote a chapter, and she presents a lot of her empirical work that they've done in Britain the last five or six years to actually measure the uh, presence uh, and a description of the different uh, sorts of uh, aftermaths with the... Uh, uh, presence within the absence of people that are going through grief uh, reactions. And the book was co-edited with Laurie Burke, who's a psychologist in uh, Portland, who uh, has done most of her work with spiritual uh, sort of unrest and spiritual belief systems. And she had uh, were two very powerful panels of uh, patients that, with whom she had worked 
one panel dealt with uh, 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 dealing with mediums uh, to four women that had very positive experiences with that. Uh, and uh, Camille Wortman uh, wrote two chapters on uh, the expression of uh, and healing of grief uh, through the Internet. Uh, I had no idea that uh, so much information and work was going on on the Internet. And those are two really interesting chapters. So this all came from uh, a gathering of uh, various concepts and models and uh, clinical insights uh, about dealing directly uh, with the image of the person after after uh, death and with a, a, a spirit of investigation and uh, sort of a uh, a cheerful irreverence uh, about some of the things that have been uh, written early on particularly the psychoanalytic uh, sort of concepts which of course are, are, are very helpful but uh, not doctrinaire at all so it was that kind of a meeting and uh, it was so stimulating that we decided to write a book. And uh, I think Lori Burke has done the lion's share of work on the uh, on the editing. I think I've been more responsible for uh, helping her to uh, to gather these uh, these people and uh, and to make sense out of what they've written. But they're all good writers. I'm impressed with that as well. So I think it's a good read. There still seems to be in the larger culture this idea that grief is a fairly um, like a, a process that people go through in their steps and that when people have this ongoing connection that I think there's a sense that there's something wrong or pathological about this presence of the deceased person and that that's something people have to get over and there's a certain period where it's okay and then it's not okay. Is this? Can you talk about how this idea is uh, shifting, and that there's a sense that this is uh, not a not a real model of the actual grieving process? Oh, sure. Um, I think the staged uh, model of uh, of grief, which was popularized in the '60s with Kubler Ross. Like she had five stages, and eventually even more than that. And I think that's become very popularized because it's uh, it's handy. It's a plan. It's something that uh, uh, is, lends coherence to what's going. And there's something almost epigenetic about the stages. You begin with with shock, and then then you go through final finally uh, through a process of acceptance. And that's not the way it is. Um, I think there are basically two stages of grief. There, there's who you were before the death and who you are now and in the future. And uh, those can be quite discrepant uh, in terms of your own identity. And that's dependent, I think, on the level of, and the quality of the attachment between you and the person that uh, died. In other words, how much of a self-referent was this this person? How much of the, their own identity was lost uh, 
in the final absence of the person they were uh, attached to. Um, and that their attachment, uh, the memories come back in waves, um, a confused mixture of feelings uh, rather than something epigenetic, and that this never disappears. I think with it begins to fade spontaneously within months, <clears throat> but it's never gone. The memory of the person is never gone, nor is their spirit or soul, if you're comfortable um, conceptualizing uh, memory as spirit or soul. And I, as a clinician, when I'm working with a patient, I don't challenge any of that. I think uh, death is a mystery, and we we have to be satisfied uh, with the fact that it's a mystery, particularly when we're working with someone else, regardless of our own beliefs. Uh, uh, so that I, I don't think that this image ever uh, ever di disappears. Um, you talk a little bit in the book about the traumatic loss of your wife and the imaginal dialogue that you had with her. How how did that inform the way you evolved your thinking about the grieving process? Well, that's a very good question. Maybe that's the way I should have started, huh? <laughs> At least it was one of the ways it started with uh, with me. Uh, that, hap that happened in 1974, so many years ago, many decades ago. And uh, Julie, my first wife, and I had moved to Seattle with our two kids. I started practice here and was on the clinical faculty at the University of Washington. And she became uh, terribly depressed when she was pregnant with our third child. Uh, and at the uh, time of the baby's uh birth, she went through a, a severe postpartum uh, uh, depression, so much so that I had to uh, I had to drop out of practice pretty much for, to support her and my uh, now three kids, ages five, two, and infant. Um, so I had to cut back my practice half time. Uh, she was not doing any better. She was getting more and more depressed. And at a month, when the baby, uh, Wendy, when she was a month old, she died suddenly from an uh, inter uh, intracranial hemorrhage. And a month later, Julie committed suicide. So where before I'd been, uh, well, an empathic clinician when it came to the whole area of grief, at that point I became very much a participant observer and not only grief, but in uh, sudden, uh, to me, violent uh, dying, even though it wasn't violent to, to Julie. Uh, so that's when I uh, really began to question this in a lot more uh, detail and depth, because much of what I had been trained in, uh, which incl uh, included, uh, of course, Freud and some of his followers, and, uh, and also the coconut grove uh, fire, and and, uh, and the whole stage model of uh, grief just didn't fit what I was going through. I was 
very, very traumatized by the way that she had died. So that it was a, a process of being challenged by two distressed responses that were going on simultaneously. One to the way that she had died, which was very traumatic to me. And uh, then the death itself, which was related to separation distress. And the separation distress was something that was attractive and coherent and meaningful, and I was drawn to that. And the traumatic way of, of her dying, that her suicide, was aversive and occurred as a flashback and a frightening dream. Uh, they were very different uh, descriptively and experientially. And... I was swept sort of between the two. And uh, I think that's very fundamental. Um, after there's been a sudden violent death, uh, beyond the anxiety of death itself is the uh, anxiety of the sort of horror and terror of violent dying, unnatural dying. Um, so uh, I think it was probably seven or eight years Later, I began to write about uh, what I had experienced uh, privately. And then I began to volunteer with a lot of the support groups in the Seattle area after there had been a violent uh, dying after suicide, homicide, accidental dying, which makes up about 7% of annual deaths. There wasn't anybody that was really doing any sort of... Uh, of uh, uh, organized uh, research uh, or writing on this uh, topic at that time, and I wasn't in a position to to uh, to have done really rigorous research in the setting where I was working. I was primarily a a, a clinician, so I wrote a lot of anecdotal uh, sort of observations and papers. Uh, and it wasn't until uh, I began getting promising practice grants from the Department of Justice um, that I was able to uh, set up a, a teaching uh, program and a manualized intervention uh, and uh, then probably four or five years ago collected enough pre-post measures on patients that have been through a violent uh, death that we could begin publishing uh, some empirical uh, papers as well. So at that point, we uh, entered the uh, the kingdom of the uh, evidence-based. I'm not as interested, however, in those measures as I am in what goes on experientially with patients with whom we're working. It's very difficult to capture the uh, thematic variations of the stories that uh, people are left with, uh, in a measure. The most measures are, are measuring symptoms. And what's going on more centrally is these conversations that people are having with the person that's died. And uh, it's very, very difficult, I think, to uh, somehow capture that uh, in a measure. Yeah, this um, imaginal dialogue. Actually, could you say a little bit about the what you call the neuropsychological amputation that the 
that the grieving person experiences. I think that's a really interesting way to describe the the actual experience. No. no. The, uh, the way I explain several of these things I, I recognize is oversimplified. I exaggerate and I uh, simplify something that's enormously complex. But I think it's important if we're going to develop models that we, we develop models that are going to be coherent for patients. If, if we have a model, it's got to be simple enough that we can explain it in, in uh, plain terms. So that is one of my favorite models to introduce uh, with people with whom I'm working because uh, it it celebrates the fact that there is something neurobiologic going on with uh, with grief, and uh, something I became sensitive to. When I was a real doctor going through medical school, and uh, and uh, my internship when serving on a clinical service, and there were, uh, we would have to prepare a patient who was going to have an amputation the next day. Uh, usually somebody that was diabetic and was going to lose a portion of their foot um, or a portion of their leg. And we would have to spend time preparing them for the fact that when the anesthesia wore off the next day, whatever had been amputated would still register as being present. There was a presence with an absence of a part of their body that had been amputated. And if it was even called that, phantom phenomenon after amputation. And we know that this is registered in, uh, in a rather complex way uh, within different centers uh, in the brain that are apparently responsible for the schema of the body. So that even though that part of the body has been amputated uh, centrally within these different uh, centers, it still registers in terms of the the circuitry and the uh, we think and the uh, the activity of that area of the brain, which never disappears. It moderates. And I've uh, I think this is a helpful sort of rough analog uh, analogy to what. Uh, what goes on after the amputation of a part of our identity, which happens with grief. We've lost uh, a part of ourself, and that part of ourself still exists as a phantom presence. Uh, and it's registered as memory, not not as physical sensation, as is the fact with amputation of a body part but it uh, registers as a narrative memory of the life that we led with them and where they have gone. <clears throat> it doesn't make sense just to feel a void for many people. Uh, and, and at a neurobiologic level, that's, this is, I think, what's responsible for searching, uh, for misidentifying uh People that uh, uh, that we see in a crowd, sometimes we need to even follow them. Uh, is is the uh, uh, 
the loss of the part of uh, part of ourself and with attachment um, strong attachment that's invariable um, I, it is however strong attachments are not invariable so that I think an individuals that have been through a a family where the uh, whole attachment system has been uh, decimated, say, with a father who's been sexually and physically abusive of members of the family, and uh, he's been uh, murdered in a bad drug deal, that the feeling can be more of relief than grief with, with many of the members. And I think also the, the quality of the attachment uh, shapes and shades the grief reaction. There's a difference between um, the compulsive need for the presence of someone that's almost childlike. I have to have this person before I feel, I have to have them close to me before I feel safe. That's different than the attachment uh, of a mother to a child, which is almost goes in the reverse direction where the safety and the proximity of somebody that I love is more important than my own safety. Uh, so compulsive caregiving <clears throat> uh, can can be just as problematic as compulsive care-seeking. Uh, so that's important to try and delineate, uh, too. We know that with grief reactions, the interaction that's... Uh, uh, presents the greatest risk is the mother who's lost a child. Um, that's, that's the level of attachment in that relationship is usually much stronger. And men have a, uh, also have a strong, fathers I'm talking about have a strong attachment, but it's expressed in a different way. Um, so part of what you talk about in the process is the narrative repair and revising the story or I think what you described sort of is the soul restoration and can you talk a little bit about what that retelling looks like or you know what what questions does the psychoanalyst or therapist bring forward to help the survivor with this uh, narrative repair process well first of all it doesn't take a psychotherapist <clears throat> at least a psychoanalyst, uh, to help the last last people that are involved in something like this or a psychiatrist. It, it's very rare that a clinician uh, is consulted uh, with complicated or prolonged grief. Um, usually, uh, this is worked out between the patient and other family members by the whole process of of memorializing the, uh, the person in their conversations. Uh, and that could certainly be backed up by um, conversations, retelling with friends and workmates. Uh, and it c can be reinforced if there's a strong commitment and comfort in uh, some organized uh, religion, which offers um, memorialization and ritual and, and gathering and ceremony. Uh, 
I think for many of us who are not religious, uh, uh, I think being able to establish some sort of transcendence from what's happening, uh, a sense of permanence in ourselves and the person that we've lost can uh, can be found uh, through nature, through water and mountains and and I think uh, commitment to other relationships including the children that was my major resource of resilience over 40 years ago when my kids were five and four at the time of uh, Julie's dying was to take care of them that there's great resilience in caring for others um that often goes on, I think, uh, in younger younger families with the need to care for, for one another. It's also for kids to be able to take care of one another and their, their parents and and to uh because that's very common when there's been a death within the family that uh, there's gonna be fear that other family members are gonna die as well. Hmm. Yeah, you um, you you said we must remain retain an artful stance, and, and I think that's a really wonderful way. And you're talking also about how those of us who are just have family members or friends who have had someone who are going through grief, how we can be helpful. Because I think there is a tendency to people not to not want to mention the the dying the dead person and to avoid the conversation. And I think you're suggesting that we could take a more artful approach and actually be more proactive in celebrating that i mean is that something that you hear with people who have had a loss that they want to be able to talk about the person and they find that others don't really let them or try to avoid that i think it's always different uh the way to approach uh, someone we know uh, in a supportive way uh, takes time and openness and I think uh, you and the the person who is grieving need to establish a, a relationship of stability rather than being thrust right away into talking about the person that uh, that died. I think with any sort of supportive intervention, it's it's important to to uh, to start indirectly. Uh, how are you doing? What do you need? Uh, how can I help? Uh, that's reassuring. Uh, you know, even though nine out of ten times there isn't going to be anything that you can do to help, and there isn't going to be anything that the person who's grieved feels that they need from you. But I think the whole ritual of going back and forth sets up a an assumption uh, of that you're there in a selfless sort of way. And you're not going to give advice, and you're not necessarily going to listen right away. Maybe, maybe at the end of a brief conversation, you could uh, you could relate that you're uh, concerned and want to meet with them again in, in a month. Maybe we could have lunch to talk talk further. Uh, this is obviously with a good friend, um, you know, where you've had that sort of relationship uh, before. But I think that that's something to celebrate with 
every kind of supportive intervention, including therapy, is that it begins uh, by establishing a relationship of of stability and meaning. And uh, when I meet a patient for the first time who's highly distressed, I reassure them that the last thing that we're going to talk about is the dying or the death. We have to get to know one another. Uh, and I, but I want to know early on what their concept of death is. What What do you believe about death? To find out whether or not that's comforting or not. Uh, in terms of their spiritual uh, uh, beliefs, and obviously not to introduce your own. That can be very annoying, I, th- uh, I think. Uh, but the, uh, and also, uh, what what I do, which would not be necessarily appropriate in a social sort of context, but uh, I celebrate what goes on in a memorial service, which usually begins as you're walking in. There are pictures of the person that's died. Um, I want to see a picture of the person that died, and it's usually on someone's iPhone, and usually they're smiling and and alive and uh, vital, and I want to know their name, and I want to know how they would feel about uh, our beginning to work on the grief together. What would they feel that... Uh, this person needed in terms of of stabilizing themselves and uh, in other words as I see it uh, a shaman a clergy a clinician were all focused in a similar way on the soul or the spirit or the memory uh, of the person in a uh, purpose of Establishing meaning and, st- and stability is particularly difficult to do after there's been a sudden violent death. Um, and we don't just do that with words, and we certainly don't do it with medicine. There isn't any pill for grief. There have been several prospective double-blind randomized studies that have demonstrated that antidepressants work with depression, but they don't work for grief. Um, so uh, we're working at a at a level of of interchange with stories and uh, images, and it's uh, important, I think, uh, to uh, to begin pre-verbally with with some of this uh, some of the memory that uh, beyond words and pictures pictures often help with that. Um, and you know, nowadays, even with memorial services, at least, and I'm attending a lot more at age 83 than I used to, that uh, now with all of the videographic uh, uh, techniques that are going on, that there are sometimes uh, almost shows of video that go on much too long. <laughs> 35, 40 minutes, they just they can't contain enough. When really, I think less is more uh, in a lot of these uh, uh, situations. Uh, just sev- several images. 
And that's what's going on in in any kind of setting when we begin talking with someone about someone who has died in terms of the presence within absence. They are there, and they begin to uh, appear before us in what I call the third space. uh, And we can uh, begin to reconstruct uh, their presence and retelling uh, their they're living and then they're dying if necessary um, together so that the the person who's highly distressed and fixated on the, on the uh, internalized presence of the of the deceased is desperately clinging to, uh, to that percept uh, and the idea in terms of their role in the story is to change it from a helpless sort of witness and hanging on to the the story for their very safety and survival is to begin moderating the story uh, so that they have some control over the story which now becomes wider and deeper as we we tell retell it in more in more detail uh, so that they can summon the story rather than having to chase it uh, or after a violent death uh, having the story uh, occur as a flashback that they have no control over so I think it's a, it's a very helpful concept which was uh, established uh, uh, by Winnicott who talked about was a British psychoanalyst uh, in the 50s who talked about uh, what he called a third space, an imaginal replay in children uh, that we don't really lose. Uh, unfortunately, we try to repress it as we become adults, and adults aren't nearly as comfortable dealing in an imaginal way about death and dying as children are. Children can draw imagery about the person that's died in terms of where their spirit is and they can try and reverse what happened and try and tell a different sort of story. And uh, we've got to get back to that, I think, and helping people who are fixated on on grief is to begin uh, working at a more imaginal level uh, than just being focused on signs and symptoms and stages and protocols. Uh, it's always different. That's what makes it so exciting, I think. It's so worthwhile. And yeah, you're right, artful. Uh, yeah, I'm remembering I was working with children once and there was a little girl who came into this art program and she drew a picture of, I found out later that her father had died when playing with her in a lake the day before. And she drew a picture of a lake and an elephant angel carrying away her father. And she was explaining this to me as she was drawing. And then her cousin was there and told me what had happened. And it was really interesting to me to see how she was imaginally working through, you know, understanding what that experience had been like. Well, that is. That's what an interesting image. What was the lake about? Do you think? Well, they were in a lake when he died. He was actually um, had her on his shoulders, 
and he drowned underneath of her in the lake. Yeah, and it was the the use of the elephant was really interesting, and how because we I'd asked her about elephants. We were talking about animals, and I mentioned elephants. And then she started drawing it and used the element the elephant as a way to carry her father's angel out of the lake. Yeah, of course. <clears throat> my, my image of that uh, of elephants is the <clears throat> elephant who's totally submerged, but his trunk is out of the water. <laughs> There's some mastery going on with, with something that big and strong. And... Yeah. We talked a little bit about the, you know, the change of identity that happens. Can you say a little more about that when, as you've seen people go through the process and how they're, they're able to make, the grieving becomes this, a rite of passage for their own identity? Because I think that's an idea that doesn't, isn't really prevalent in our culture at this time. Well, it should be. <clears throat> Particularly with grief, I think. Von Gennep, who was, uh, uh, he did most of his research in the early 1900s in Australia. He was an anthropologist. Uh, and what he established was the uh, importance of social and cultural rites of passage, uh, which begin uh, at birth. Uh, and there are you know there are many of them, but the ones that uh, that are most luminous, at least in Australia at that era, were were times of, of birth and fertility, uh, and then starting out around adolescence, uh, with a rite of passage to early adulthood, and then a rite of passage to uh, when, when you were married and had your own child. And uh, then a rite of passage, uh, whether you became a warrior or established some sort of social uh, identity. And a rite of passage uh, with graduation. All of these are promise uh, some sort of progression of respect and power within the culture or the society and of, and of maturing. And it's something that well, people look forward to. And so, however, the rite of passage of dying and, uh, and death is more complex. Uh, it's a time of loss and of grief, and it's not a passage that people necessarily want to go through. Some, that's not always true, obviously. <laughs> there are some, some deaths that are greeted with relief, and I gave you one example a bit ago, but another more common example, I think, is a spousal grief where the person that's died was very ill for a long period of time, and the, the survivor uh, was in a, in a intense caregiving role, and sometimes they're, they have a difficult time admitting it, but they're very, very relieved. Uh, of having to be in that role, but usually the case is that uh, with grief, that uh, people uh, go through a period of, of isolation, which uh, they often welcome because going through grief is hard work. It takes a lot of energy. There's a lot of rumination going on. A lot of very private uh, sort of recapitulation of uh, of memories. 
and retelling that are done all alone. And uh, so I see grief as more of a rite of passage than a, a psychologic or psychiatric uh, disorder, uh, despite it being declared as much by the DSM-5R. Um, I don't think that's going to make that much of a difference. Uh, there, there are some people that have been dreading that uh, decision. I think that prolonged grief certainly exists as a disorder. I think it's very rare. Um, well, it depends on the attachment relationship and it depends on the form of the dying, but uh, maybe 10 or 15%, probably less than that. Um, and that most of the time this all clears over time spontaneously, but it never uh, completely disappears. It's, uh, as I see it, more of an adjustment uh, disorder than it is a psychiatric disorder such as major depression or schizophrenia or uh, some of our other disorders that have a clear uh, neurobiologic substrate. So that even though grief does have a neurobiologic uh, substrate, I think it's more of a uh, an adjustment uh, than something, uh, a, a, a disorder that, that uh, becomes much more disabling. And of course, uh, that's the, one of the frustrations of psychiatry is that all of our mo models, or at least our diagnostic criteria, are uh, descriptive. Uh, we don't understand uh, in a fundamental way what's going on neurochemically, or uh, if that's <clears throat> if that's what's responsible. <laughs> we don't have a, a, a firm empirical predictive. Uh, way of understanding what's going on with a lot of these uh, disorders. We have too many disorders, as I see it. Regarding prolonged grief, how, have you seen any, what, what kind of changes have you seen with COVID in the way that people are experiencing death in different ways? And how is that um, altering or influencing the grief process? Well, I think one of the ways, uh, just in terms of, it's an interruption in the rite of passage. The uh, thing that I think that's been so tragic about COVID, uh, COVID is not only because it's it's swept throughout throughout the world. We've lost a million people here in the United States, but it has this whole political aftermath uh, that's gone on. But more centrally, I think, in terms of the of the ritual of dying, is the family is isolated uh, from that process. There's no role for them in the dying narrative. Uh, the, the dying narrative should include them. They should be there holding the person. I'm talking about physical proximity, uh, saying goodbye, uh, ringing around the bed, uh, respecting the person, doing all that they can to rescue the person. All of this is taken out of their hands the minute that somebody goes into an ICU with uh, with COVID, uh, the the dying isn't stigmatized in a social sense, the way homicide or suicide uh, is. Uh, but it's it's very fearful uh, and contagious. Uh, 
which makes it a, a different sort of process uh, as well. So they're all, you know, what the medical authorities are doing is trying to protect the rest of us from from dying with the, with the uh, same di- uh, disease. But with a family, um, there's something very aberrant that's introduced into this uh, in the interruption of the what should be a natural sort of uh, process for for dying. And it's gonna it's gonna have some enduring effects. Uh, there's no question about it. I don't think it's uh, it's going to be a, a, a major uh, sort of in, uh, inducer of of uh, prolonged grief. Again, because uh, uh, so few people uh, have to uh, have to go through something that severe. I think it's probably overplayed in the press, mm. as I see it. It does seem like there is an opportunity with how we think about the grieving process and it as a rite of passage to really um, have death and dying in our lives be part of how we really fully embrace being alive and that thinking differently about the connection with the deceased and the way the, the practitioners in your book talk about it is a really powerful way for us to think about life itself. Well, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. One of the chapters uh, in the book is by John Rourke, who is a, a psychiatrist. He was on the uh, faculty at Stanford, recently retired. He had a tremendous amount of experience with death and dying. And what's interesting about his uh, writing is that he's a Buddhist. And, uh, of course, the Buddhist uh, belief about suffering and death um, is um, is very confrontive uh, and accepting. And uh, uh, you know, I, I'm Buddhist to that extent. I think about dying every day. Uh, and I didn't, I don't think, before I, my first wife died. But I'm the youngest of four children and my parents and my three older siblings have all died so uh, at 83 i'm i'm left as the uh the sole member of the of my nuclear family which i think uh you know as we get older uh we have to go through this uh, more frequently and it doesn't get any easier either each one of the people that I've lost has a, a specific sort of attachment relationship uh, with me. They're all different. Um, but I I think uh, it was very helpful that I came from the sort of family that was able to talk at some length and some detail about dying and death. And we were able to, to, uh, to share a lot of our concepts about um, not only... A, a meaningful sort of life, uh, but also a meaningful sort of death, and be able to talk with one another about that before before the dying, which we don't do often enough, I don't think, in our culture. We do have, you know, an awful lot to avoid uh, talking about death because death, you know, most, most deaths occur in hospitals where where we're uh, doing everything that we can to avoid 
And, and of course we do. I don't mean to discourage that. But uh, on the other hand, we know that there's, in the final sense, nothing we can do to avoid it. And the importance of, of uh, accepting that as a part of life uh, and talking about it. Uh, or at least allowing yourself to uh, to experience it, that possibility, which I do on a daily basis. It's not it's not anything I'm obsessed with, but I think I think there are times where I'm so happy with with life that uh, you know you can't help but think about what it would be like without it, or what it would be like with for others without me. Yeah. Well, it's been really enjoyable to talk with you about death today and life. Um, we're just about out of time. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think we've I think we've uh, we've covered a lot. Uh, I, I guess what I would uh, want to focus on we were the last thing we we were talking about was. Uh, prolonged uh, grief as a, a uh, psychiatric disorder. Um, that's not the way to start. Uh, I think it's a it, it's a, it's something that certainly exists, and there are people that are disabled with uh, with their grief, but it's much more common, I think, for uh, for people to be at six, nine, twelve months, they're going to need some help. They're going to need some support. Um, they're going to need uh, to have someone that has time to listen. This isn't anything that can be done quickly. Um, I think there are certain techniques, uh, EMDR, that people are uh, uh, know about, uh, time-limited CBT, there's a whole list of different interventions that could be considered at, uh, at different times that are, are very relevant uh, and helpful. I've emphasized that medicines aren't. Uh, but I think all of this needs uh, to be uh, based on a relationship with a, somebody who really cares about them if, uh, if they're reaching the point that they need to get some help. They need to have a primary... Uh, healer uh, involved in all of this, whether that's a clergy or there aren't many shaman anymore, uh, unfortunately, uh, or a, a therapist, somebody primary that's going to follow the person over a long period of time. A lot of the interventions that are recommended are short terms, including the intervention that we've developed uh, for violent and unnatural dying. But most of these short-term interventions are just that. They're adjunctive. And we're, they all deal with very, very similar sorts of techniques uh, and mechanisms. And what's, what's often required, I think, is somebody that's available who can follow these people over time in case they need to be uh, seen again if, uh, if things are triggered and they're getting upset. Uh, so that's what I would hope for uh, if I were going through a grief reaction. Is there someone I could find whom I really trusted 
over time who was a good listener and could help me to uh, to retell the stories that I've I've been left with, rather than getting focused on on signs and symptoms and syndromes and measures. Uh, so that's important, I think, uh, to try and identify someone uh, like that as we grow older. Uh, and it's not necessarily a physician or a psychologist. Um, it could be a, certainly a family member or, or a close friend or a clergy. Uh, but someone you can really depend on. Uh, we all need that. Uh, we all need that from the time we're born, really. <laughs> but uh, it certainly doesn't diminish or disappear altogether. It's one of the first questions I ask as I'm working with somebody is, who can you depend on? Who takes care of you? And uh, yeah, We all need that. Well, not all. I, here, once again, I start getting extreme. Maybe that's a, that's a good way to end is to admit that I do get extreme just for teaching purposes. Anyhow. But it's been a pleasure. I uh, hope your audience uh, appreciates this and, uh, and gets something out of it. Yeah, I think it's a wonderful book for practitioners and really anyone. They're, the essays are really interesting and have a range, range of thoughts and ways to think about connections with the deceased. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Ted. It's been really interesting to think more deeply about how we approach death. I'm Susan Greylock Usum, and this is the New Books Network. I've been speaking with our guest, Dr. Ted Reinerson, about his new book, co-edited with Dr. Lori Burke, The Restorative Nature of Ongoing Connections with the Deceased, Exploring Presence Within Absence. We hope this conversation has helped to spark new understanding of grief and that you'll dig into Dr. Reinerson's insightful new book to learn more.